So um, summertime is a time when people tend to come in and out of a church because you're on vacation, which is why we've done this summer psalter, because you can kind of pick up different psalms and they kind of are self-contained units. And, and I wanted to do um, another psalm this, this week, Psalm 32. And I just want to warn you, like, it, 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 it deals with the issue of the joy of forgiveness, but in dealing with the joy of forgiveness, it deals with, with human sin. And uh, at a very real level, and, and I just want to say, I know that talk about sin is looked upon as maybe negative or um, um, something you don't want to hear about, but, but I want to assure you that the this, this psalm which deals with human sin and the joy of forgiveness, it, it, it delves into these things because, um, because it wants our joy. And that's what God's love does. It talks about difficult issues for the sake of our joy. And when God brings up negative things, it's always for a positive purpose, uh, redemptive purpose. So, um, so that's the topic of, of this particular message. And it, it should hit, like, all of us. First um, John 1, 9, right, uh, says, I think it's 1, 8, actually, that says that um, if anyone says he, he doesn't sin, well, then he's a liar. And the truth isn't in him. And that means that all of us are in the same boat here this morning, and to varying degrees, uh, I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will speak to you in whatever way um, you struggle. And all of us do. Uh, we struggle with sin. And to say otherwise is, uh, is really to, uh, to lie about it. And so, but I want to do it with this aim of, of joy at the end, because that's, that's the positive aim in it all. Now, having said that, let me... Just acknowledge something that many of us do. We often differentiate in our minds, especially Christians, but we differentiate in our minds um, between bad sins and horrible sins. Like there's the little ones and then there's the gargantuan ones that you never want to touch with a 10-foot pole, right? And in, on a practical level, it, 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 it's true that there needs to be like a, some discretion or some differentiation. Like, for example... To hate somebody in your heart is itself a sinful attitude. To murder somebody and take their life physically is also a sin. But the second one has huge generational and social ramifications that the first one does not. And, and it's important to keep in mind that there are certain sins that have greater um, social consequences and impacts than other ones. But the thing is, is that, and that's on a horizontal level, a social level. But Jesus came along and said, but there is a vertical level in which he said, you know, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit murder. But I'm going to tell you, if you're angry at your brother, that is, there's a sense of bitterness and anger and hatred of him, then you have committed murder in your heart. And on that vertical level, he sees it as the same. Right? We tend to think horizontally, but Jesus gets us to think vertically. Like, which means that I've, I'm, this is just an example, harboring bitterness and hatred in my heart for somebody. That means that God sees, um, sees, it, sees it as the same as an act of murder. Now, that's why I think one of the marks of, a, of truly um, maturing, spirit-filled Christians, one of the marks is that they will begin to see with an acute awareness their own sinfulness. In fact, seen from that vertical angle, a mature Christian should see themselves as the worst of all possible sinners. 
And there's voices from the past that have echoed the same thing. Of course, the Apostle Paul thought of himself that way. I am, present tense, chief. So that's how we saw it. Because he wasn't just looking at it on a social dimension or a horizontal dimension. He saw it from a vertical dimension. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorites, as you know, wrote this. He said, to forego self-conceit and to associate with the lowly means in all soberness and without mincing the matter. In other words, no justification, no, 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 no qualifications, just straight out to consider oneself as the greatest of sinner. Um, some of you might have read Thomas the Kempis, his uh, classic work called The Imitation of Christ. He wrote something similar in a similar vein saying, you must not think that you have made any progress. Talk about Christian progress. You, you haven't gone anywhere until you look upon yourself as inferior to all others. Now, it's easy to read that and easy for me to say that. But how many Christians actually believe that? Because if you believe that truth, there would be far less self-righteousness and judgmental spirits in the church. That I, in fact, knowing myself and seeing through the eyes of God, through the words of Jesus, understand that at heart, there's times when I have I've been a murderer. There's times when I have committed adultery in my heart. And God sees it that way. Now the question is, and I said, I think that's a mark of a maturing, humble, um, progressing Christian, is to come to see yourself that way. And tell you what, it's hard to be judgmental when you see yourself that way. But how, how then do we deal with it, right? Because there are self-destructive ways of dealing with your own inner corruption. There are dangerous ways of dealing with it. There are like sinful ways of dealing with your sinfulness. Uh, so how, how is it? Because the Lord doesn't want us to go to a place that's deep into a hole, into depression, into despair, with our own awareness of our own inner corruption. So what would he have us do? And that's where a psalm like Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, we're looking at 32, like shines a light for us. It's like, listen, this is the healthy way of dealing with your own inner corruption, with the ugliness you know is there. This is, this is how to deal with it in an appropriate, healthy way that leads to joy. All right? That's, that's, that's why the psalm is here. As I said two weeks ago, the psalms are like little shepherds. They're, they not only reveal things about God, but they also show us how to walk this life in light of the different situations. And this one shines a path on how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to respond when we find ourselves in uh, struggling with sin and failure. So the way this psalm is kind of shaped is it begins and ends with the conclusion. Um, th this is what David discovered. This is his life. This is his experience. And um, it really ends where it begins. And I just want you to see this is the final discovery. He's like telling you up front, this is the conclusion of my, my, my journey. Um, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man. That could be um, translated happy, actually. But, and also, end of verse 1, there's that word covered, uh, I, italicized it. Um, I want you to just log that word away in your brain for a second, because I'm going to come back to it, a pivotal word in this psalm. So, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the, uh, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In this context of this psalm, that last part, in whose spirit there is no deceit, obviously cannot mean someone who is perfect on the inside, but rather someone who is completely honest. So blessed, this, this is my conclusion, blessed if you're forgiven. And then he concludes kind of in the same way, brings it back to the positive. Many are the uh, sorrows of the wicked. Those are people who don't trust the Lord, don't confess the Lord, keep things hidden. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Like actually you trust him enough 
with the, your ugliness that he will actually love you and forgive you in spite of who you are. Um, concluding with be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. There's so many joy words and glad words and rejoice words in this psalm that's about human sin. Right? Well, that's, that's, that's the conclusion. That's the discovery he makes at the end of his journey. And what I want to do right now is I want to mentally set that conclusion aside, that discovery aside, and I want to show you his journey because he gives us his journey of how he got there. Because he didn't start, at least in this part of the journey, he didn't start in a happy place. This is, this is where he starts. The beginning of his journey that he's expressing, he's telling his little story, is that it began with uh, self-covering in fear. Um, that is, he, he hid now, what exactly David did, King David did, we don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. Was this his affair with Bathsheba? Uh, was this his conspiracy to commit murder? Um, the text doesn't say, but whatever it was, the sense is it was, it, was, it was bad. And he writes about how he first responded to this inner failure and guilt. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. He's describing something that had a physical, emotional, and a spiritual effect on his life that, that literally tore him up. Now, whether it's figurative when it says that his bones wasted away, whether or not he just had no appetite and his literally body was wasting away, or whether that's just figurative for feeling like, man, my whole body is just wasting away because of depression, could be either. But then the groaning and the animosity that he felt inside, the, the grieving, the, um, the angst, it's emotional. And then this, on a spiritual level, he recognizes like God is pushing his hand down on him. This is a form of discipline. Day and night, I felt it all the time like your hand was heavy upon me. There was no joy of fellowship. I didn't sense the blessing of the Lord in my life. And I was completely out of energy. Like this... He's expressing to us, like, this is, this is the physiological, emotional, and spiritual um, results of, of hiding something, of being silent, of, of, of concealing a, a inner guilt and, and sin. Now, some of you might be able to relate to this. Maybe many of you. I can remember back to a time when something happened in your life that, that you, because you were fearful of shame, fearful of being rejected by people, fearful of what people would think about you, you just hit it. And you're like, I know what that feels like. I, I know what that feels like. I'm just saying, I, I actually know what that feels like. And you can see it. Some of you may know people who you just watch them like disintegrate from the outside in. You wonder what happened, only to find out that there was a secret there they've been keeping. Like, so someone very close to me, a friend, um, just burned through some marriages, became a raging alcoholic, and made several attempts to end her life. And I, as her friend and her family, were watching like, what? Like, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> like, why would you make these self-destructive choices and continue in them? And it was in her 40s that it came out that back when she was 17, she had made a mistake, got pregnant, and to keep it all quiet, went and got an abortion. And she had been holding, and she knew in her conscience that she ended a life. I realize I'm tipping my hat here, but a person in their conscience knows that that is something that is wrong. Because every year she would calculate out, my son would have been this age. 
And then she had other kids, and oh my gosh, it's just like, it was so much, the guilt was so much, it tore her up on the side, and she held on to her for, for over two decades. Like, th- that's what it does, until it actually, there was a confession, and there was an assurance of forgiveness, and she has now been sober for three years, and she is on her way back to health. That's what happens when you hide it. Now, not everybody is that, you know, sensational or um, does it erupt into that kind of full-blown addiction. But where there is a hiddenness, when there is a, a, a covering of, of one's own corruption, a hiding it, it has an effect to one degree or another. It may steal your joy and your strength. You may come to church going, well, I just, I just don't feel like God loves me. Well, is, is there something that you've hidden, you've been holding on to? It's, it's, it's an important question, and, and this is part of the negative side of the psalm, but, it, but to address it is actually for the sake of health and bringing you out into the light. That's, that's why David says what he says. Like, this is how, what I did. Now, let me just press this in a little bit further. Because we're pretty sneaky people in terms of covering things up. Um, we're smart and cunning, and we've figured out socially respectable ways of uh, kind of hiding or diminishing uh, or de-emphasizing our particular sins, right? So let me just uh, explore a couple ways that we hide that are kind of tricky. And you, you think through, is it, which, which one do I do? Which do I use? Now, the first one, the obvious one is, is just what I said. That is, you just conceal it. You don't let anybody know about it. You hide it. That's the example that I just gave of the lady who had ended a life. Um, that is one way of hiding it. That's an obvious way concealing it. But there are other ways of minimizing or de-emphasizing one's own personal culpability or guilt. Here's another one. De-emphasizing or cloaking or hiding by comparing your particular struggle with somebody else's, right? Uh, That is, we have a way of consoling ourselves, feeling better about ourselves, maybe even congratulating ourselves that whereas I don't do you know, I may struggle with lying or I may struggle with the whole idea of uh, sexual intimacy outside of the context of marriage, a.k.a. promiscuity. At least I'm not a well, white supremacist. Like, those guys are really bad, right? Our culture thinks that way. Pointing fingers saying, these guys are horrible. They need to, like, and, and granted, it's wrong. Right? We'd say, yeah, absolutely. But what kind of sins do we have? That is, we can easily de-emphasize our own particular struggle by comparing it with what we consider to be something worse than ourselves. And that is a way of not really owning up to the fact that I'm just guilty. It's a way of de-emphasizing, really kind of a way of kind of hiding. It's one of the tricky ways we do it to ourselves in our own minds. I'm not as bad as I could be. Or here's another one. is we can easily de-emphasize our, our particular guilt or struggle by... Um, by justifying it implicitly. We can do this with each other. We can do this with God. Or here's an example. Have you ever had somebody offend you? Everybody in here, I assume, has been offended, especially if you're married. You've been offended. And, uh, hey, no, it's just the truth, right? Two sinners in covenant. I'm sorry, but you're going to offend each other if you don't think so. Well, better reread your Bible, (laughs) Point being, okay, just, I love my wife. Is that what you're thinking right now? (laughs) 
No, it's just, you know, you know, the thing is about marriage is you know that particular tone that nobody else would get when you're like, oh, you're mad at me, huh, right? So, <laughs> so let's just say it's, it, it's, it's the guy. He's like, man, sweetheart, I'm sorry I blew up at you. But, you know, the tone with which you just spoke to me really bothered me. Now, listen, anytime there is an apology or a request for forgiveness with a but in it, that's a way of deferring blame and saying, but you're a part of this too. And there is an implicit justification for, you know, if you really didn't do that, I wouldn't have sinned. Now it's your fault. You see, and that is... A justification. And anytime there's a, and we do this with the Lord. Lord, I wouldn't have acted this way, but I had a horrible childhood. It's like, oh, God's going to, so it's my fault. All that to say, if a person justifies their sin in any way, they really aren't owning it. They're still trying to, in some way, cover by justifying. I, I hope you see it. And don't ever try that in marriage, by the way. Just leave the butts out. Just, just apologize. Just say I screwed up. That's it. Another one, adorning your sin. Let's try to dress it up and make it not seem so bad by using other words that aren't quite as, that don't sound as bad. So, and I'm being facetious when I say this, but, you know, I'm sorry that I stole from you, but I, I really didn't steal from you. I just borrowed from you. With the intent of bringing it back eventually. Because I'm, I'm not a thief. I'm not like that. It's like, no, if you stole something, just say I'm a thief and I stole it. Don't try and put lipstick on the pig. Just, it, it was just wrong. But we do that with color with our, langu- our language, trying to make ourselves feel better about our own corruption by redefining things or giving it um, better language. And, and the point is, is that it's just another way of trying to cover and hide and and justify and, and not really take ownership for one's own personal issues. And, and then one final one, this is certainly not all, but this is really more a result of not seeing your own sin for what it is. But the whole by de- demanding or thinking that somehow forgiveness is owed to you if you confess. And this happens in counseling. It has happened on a number of occasions in which I have a couple right in front of me. And I'm not thinking of anybody in particular when I say this. I'm just, um, in fact, yeah. Um, (laughs) Where the the woman does something that deeply offends the marriage and the the male or the husband. And they're in my office because of this. And and, 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 and it sometimes goes like this. Listen, my husband, I, 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 I did something wrong. And I confessed to him and I asked him to forgive me. And he won't forgive me, even though I quote Bible verses at him. The offending party cannot demand forgiveness of the offended party. As if forgiveness is owed. Forgiveness is never owed. A simple confession does not merit forgiveness. Forgiveness is a free gift, which is why it's called for give. It has to be a willing choice on the part of the offended party to say, I forgive you. And the, the moment that a person demands it, to me, 
means that they have de-emphasized and they don't really get the heinousness or the gravity of their own sinfulness. Should Christians forgive? I believe so because we've been forgiven so much more. But the offended, offending party cannot demand it. And if an offending party does, then they still don't get their sin. It's still being hidden, right? God does not owe us forgiveness. It is something that he freely offers to us by way of a gift, by way of mercy and grace and love. So these are just some of the ways that we're tricky. We're sneaky. We, we, can, we can hide and de-emphasize the, the stuff in us and the stuff that comes out of us by these ways. And it keeps us in prison. It keeps us joyless. It keeps us depressed. It keeps us sour in our attitudes toward life. But David, this is just the f- first part of his journey. Like, this is where I was. And this is what I did. This is his next phase in the journey and the turning point. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the turning I acknowledged. I, I, it's, it's, he completely self-disclosed. Like, no more cover-ups. No more redefining things. No more justifying things. This is me, and this is what I did. All of it. Standing buck naked morally before God. This is it. And this is not, by the way, simply a cathartic um, dump or, or uh, vomiting of emotion. You know, we have people, even people who don't believe, who feel good about getting things off their chest. It just feels cathartic. That's not what David is doing. This is an intentional act of trust. It's, it's, he acknowledged this, this in faith. We know that because a few verses later, he talks about the fact that steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Like, I trust you enough that you'll love me even though I, I'm ugly when I show you myself. I'm going to trust that you're forgiving and you're gracious and merciful. And I'm going to come and trust and just say, this is what I've done. It's an, it's an, it's an acknowledgement that comes from faith. And here you have, interesting, kind of the juxtaposition of two things. You can either hide in fear of what people think of you, or one can come face to face with their sin and they can acknowledge it to God in faith. Those two often move in contrary places. You live in fear and therefore live in prison, or you live in faith. You come out into the light and you experience the joy of being forgiven by God. That's, the, that's, that's what he does. This is the, the, the turning point for him is, is that I acknowledge my sin. I, 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 no more cover-ups. And, and that, there's, there's no other path out of that prison. There's no other path back to joy when a person is secretly harboring or covering something up other than to come out into the light. And if I may add another component to this, which you may or may not want to hear, is that God has given us community, that is, people around us to help. Which is why um, James, book in the New Testament, chapter 5, I think it's verse 16, says, you know what? You know, we confess to God, but confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It's like 
we are supposed to have people help us. They are, it's a gift of God to be able to have brother and sister who you know, who you trust, who's wise and will not steer you in the right direction that you can say, hey, listen, I've been confessing this to God. This is what's going on, and I, I just need to tell you too. Not for the sake of shame, not for the sake of being embarrassed, but he tells us to do that for the sake of healing, for health, for encouragement, and for prayer. So that's part of the, 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 the way out. That's part of the, part of the journey. Now, the result. If this is his, his journey, I was in prison. I was covering it. I acknowledged it in faith and trust. Then the result, of course, um, right there at the end of verse 5 is, is divine pardon. Like, God has a way, when one comes totally clean with him, of reinforcing the truth of forgiveness by way of his spirit through the truth. That you're like, I am forgiven. You really have casted this as far as the east is from the west. And I stand in the light of your forgiveness, and it, the burden of my sin is no longer mine. That is what he experienced. That was the result. You forgave the, the iniquity of my sin. Now, I just want to f- focus on two words in terms of that idea of forgiveness. One is that word covering. I told you to log it away in your noggin at the beginning. And the other is the word forgive. It's interesting to you that the two times that he uses the word cover, one talks about the blessedness of it being covered, and the other talks about the need to have it uncovered. David's confession, it says, I did not cover my iniquity. I, 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 I brought it for, out for God to see all of it. That's a proper response for us on our part for our personal guilt. But when we do that, what God does is then God is the one who then covers it. Our part is not to cover it up. And God's part, because he's gracious and merciful, is actually to cover it, right? Blessed is the first verse. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Adam and Eve sinned. They covered themselves. God's like, nope, you can't do that. You cannot absolve yourself of your own sin. Only I can do that. And then he provides the covering. It's, it, it's, 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 it's something only God himself can do. You cannot self-atone. You cannot self-forgive. It's something only God can do. God is the one who covers. But that raises a question. So does God, like, cover it like, like ignoring an abscessed tooth or sweeping it under the carpet? No. God covers by forgiving. What I mean by that is interesting. You know, the, the Hebrew word translated forgive literally means, literally means to carry away or to bear away. Like, that's actually what it means in its most literal sense. Which means if we wanted to translate verse 5, the end of it, literally, it would be something like this. I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you bore away or carried away my sin. The, the mental picture is, is like a big old huge bag of rocks, right? Heavy weight. And picking it up and slinging it over your back and walking with it. Like... You picked up the big, huge, heavy weight of my sin, and you carried it for me. That's how forgiveness happens. In order for forgiveness to happen, somebody has to bear the weight of 
the debt. Somebody has to bear the weight of forgiveness. And the person who forgives bears the weight. There's no way you can't see Jesus in the cross here. That, That what David experiences here was made a full and physical reality when God himself in the person of the Son came and lived our life and he picked up that sack of of infinite ugliness called human sin and he bore it. He carried it away and then he paid for it in full so that it's not buried like an abscessed tooth. It is gone. Gone. That is the picture of God is the one who bears the sin so that he can then forgive us. That's... That's why the God of Scripture is, both Testaments, is so amazingly beautiful and merciful. Like, he does it. He does it. Divine pardon always comes at a huge cost. And that is someone has to bear it, and God himself ultimately bear it in the person of Jesus Christ. Which is why we should, in this room, if we're honest with God, and there's no more deceit, you're not lying to yourself, you're not trying to cover it over, we can say, listen, Lord, you know my heart, you know that I'm a sinner, and I'm, I'm working my way towards being more like Christ, but I thank you that you have borne it, and I stand here as a free man. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's his journey. I was once in a dark place in prison. I came out, and I didn't cover it over. No more apologies, or not apologies, no more, no more justification. And you, you assured me that I stand free and forgiven. Now let me end with the two exhortations. Because he gives two exhortations. Out of this journey and this experience, he tells us two things. And I put it in my own words. Out of this experience and all that he's learned about how to deal with Sin in life in a proper way that's not self-destructive or dangerous or sinful. It's basically, listen, based upon everything I've just told you, make haste to come clean. That's the, that's the sense of verse 6 when he says, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Listen, he's saying to the people of his day, he's saying to us, listen, don't wait. Don't linger. Don't procrastinate. If... if If you're one of those people who are living in a compromised situation, you're hiding it in some way, shape, or form, don't wait for a convenient time. Deal with it now. Come to the Lord now. Come clean to him now. In other words, don't let your head fall asleep on your pillow tonight before something is done about it. That's his exhortation. And if if you're thinking right now, man, I, I know... I just feel like this is, God is like kind of pressing in. I feel like he's talking directly to me. Like, if that's you, I just want to tell you, don't let that go. Don't let it release. Don't walk out of here and forget what you just heard. This is God speaking to you. Hey, now's the time. I love you. Why don't you come now while I may be found? And then the second one, second exhortation is don't be a stubborn mule, right? This is verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, otherwise it won't stay near you. It's like it has to be dragged and forced. Don't be a stubborn mule, you know. You might want to translate that differently, inappropriate, but don't be a stubborn donkey, right? It's like do it willingly. Like do it now and do it willingly, knowing that the Lord loves you and he's, his heart is big, you know. Because you know what, someday, this is the truth of the matter, is that someday we're told in both Testaments, 
all throughout, from beginning to end, someday there will be, will be a reckoning in which everyone on planet Earth will be brought to face their own sinful choices. Books will be opened, and the dead will be judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. They're going to be dragged like a mule to acknowledge, man, I really did screw up. Which is part of the, listen, if you trust that God is loving and you trust he's gracious, you trust the fact that he actually bore the burden for you, come to him now and come to him willingly. Don't be dragged. And then I have to just throw in the last, the, the discovery at the end. You know how when somebody, if they've gone to a really beautiful place that takes a long time and a lot of work to get to, and you're like, listen, the journey's hard, the journey's dark, but when you get there, it's so awesome. And you're like, I trust your word on this, and so I'm going to go through this dark valley or path, and, and you experience it for yourself. You're like, yeah, you were right. It was worth it. Well, sometimes, perhaps many times, this path out of prison and into the light is a tough path. But David says, listen, on the other side, there is blessing. There is a, a, a heart happiness with God. There is joy. There's rejoicing. In other words, it's, it's worth it. That's the conclusion or the discovery on the other side. You are going to experience the joy of a rekindled relationship and fellowship with God like you've never had before. And you're going to sense his smile over you again. And that is worth it. So I want to say, uh, on the Lord's behalf, it's worth it. If, if, if this is speaking directly to you, and I realize this is kind of a somber message, if it's speaking directly to you, he's saying it's worth it. I'm going to show you things you've never seen before, and I'm going to restore your joy. So I just, I, I don't want you to leave here without responding in some way in your heart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or stand up or anything. I just, to kind of resolve in your own heart, Lord, how am I going to respond to Psalm 32? Am I going to continue hiding, or am I not? Am I going to come into the light or stay in a dark corner? That's the question. Maybe just take a moment uh, answer that for yourself as the worship team comes.